Well, 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 there's nothing like raising the voices of people who deserve a voice and to question how a voice is created and what does it mean to have a voice. And I'm talking to Helen Dia here, who is the award-winning author, journalist, and Fulbright scholar at K2H. So welcome, Helen. We're going to just dive right into talking to you about your life. Thank you, Crystal. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's a very big privilege for us to hear from you. Now, before I forget, though, we are the reason you're here today is because you're a part of the spring 2022 Dan and Maggie Inouye Distinguished Chair in Democratic Ideals. And you are teaching here at UH on campus. You are in Honolulu, which is um, unfortunate that we're not in person, but I feel your energy. And so um, thank you for, again, sharing all you're going to be sharing. I wanted to kick it off by highlighting the fact that your reputation is really one of unruliness. I say that because you, you're, most of your work is, is, is centered around resisting structures, creating voice where there's no voice, amplifying uh, women's voices, Asian American voices, social justice, and you know all these great things. So can we start with just the first unruliness I'd like to talk about is why you quit medical school. And maybe we'll kind of start with that to um, see where it goes. Sure. As an Asian American, as a Chinese immigrant daughter, daughter of a Chinese immigrants, the pressures and not to stereotype all Chinese parents, but there is that patriarchal notion of being the dutiful, obedient daughter who is going to follow the rules of what is expected of you. And so you go ahead and quit medical school, which is something that most good Chinese girls do not do. So can you speak a little to that and what kind of maybe brought you to that moment and how that led to you, your discovering your voice for your activism? Sure. No, absolutely. Um, while my parents were immigrants from China, they actually had no real expectations or pressures of me, you know, as a girl. Uh, or my brothers, I would say, for the longest. I mean, they didn't really know what uh, possibilities there were in America, but they wanted us to do the best we could and expected us to do well in school. And so I did all of those things. I was actually the kind of quiet um, Asian kid who didn't talk back to uh, authority because authority were my parents. <laughs> you know, my father in our Chinese traditional family, my father was God. And my father uh, did not take kindly to children who talked back or spoke up. So, you know, there was in, in my head, I would disagree about things my father would be saying, but I wouldn't challenge him. And that extended to teachers. Teachers were like God as well, you know. And um, my name only has three letters in it. It's Z-I-A. How many ways can you mess that up? But I did have a teacher who used to say my name badly all through school. What is the Chinese character? Is it Xia? What, what is that? Yeah, Xia, 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 Xia. Oh, so so thank, thank you. Thank you. Okay. So, and we just, it's kind of like Smith in China. It's a <laughs> common name. But so, um, and it's Z-I-A because in the Shanghai dialect, it's Xia. Yeah. So, so for a certain generation of Chinese immigrants from Shanghai, that was the way it was Romanized. But my teacher from the time that I was in elementary school, and I saw her periodically throughout, you know, throughout high school, uh, would say my name Zai. And she would just say, Zai, come over here, or whatever. And I never said anything about it. And Did it, it bother you? Um not really. I guess I just thought if my teacher says it, you know, it's not for me to say anything about it. I knew she meant me. <laughs> and so um, when I was a senior in high school, we were in a classroom and my teacher said, Zai, I want you to whatever. And one of my classmates actually spoke up and said, you know, Mrs. George, Helen's name isn't Zai, it's Zia. And so- for her. Mrs. George broke out into a laugh. I didn't know what to expect. And she just said, Zai, I mean, Zia, how come you never told me how to say your name after all these years? 
And I didn't have an answer to her. I mean, what I realized now was, you know, you're my teacher. I would never have corrected you. Right. And, you know, good for my classmate who said that. But it was also um, to your point about being a dutiful, uh, not just Chinese daughter of immigrants, but also, um, you know, the level of respect that I was uh, taught, you know, that I would never have challenged my teacher. Right. You were never encouraged to question the authority. Well, if I did to keep it to myself, you know. Okay. Okay. I mean, my father was always questioning authorities and and so forth. But for me, as a child, it wasn't. And so, you know, I continued. I I worked really hard to get into um, a college with a scholarship and, uh, you know, got into Princeton with a full scholarship. And my father, while he was proud of that, when it came time for him to sign the papers to let, you know, approve my registration, he actually refused. He said the proper place for a Chinese daughter, unmarried, is to stay at home with your parents. And I was, that was the first time I ever rose my voice to my father. I just said, no, I'm going to college. And he looked at me. I was, I don't know who was more shocked, him or me, but he then just picked up the pen, signed it and walked out of the room. Was that something that was um, spontaneous or is it something that you had to build the courage up to confront him, to tell him what you really wanted to do? It was spontaneous. It was just like, no, this is this is my ticket to freedom. I don't know. I do not want to live under, you know, my father's patriarchal thumb for all my life. And and so, you know, and, and yeah. quite you know, uh, if I had to wait until I was married to a man who would then, you know, rule over me, that was never going to happen. And we would still be sitting there, you know, um, in the kitchen. But Can I ask you. Yeah, sorry. No, but that that was my lesson that I spoke up. I spoke up to God, my father, and um, and the earth didn't open up and swallow me. I mean, so that, that was a that was a big lesson that actually I could have a voice. I could speak up oh. and uh, stand up about something that was extremely important to me. Right. So, so standing up for your voice started around that time. Now. I wanted to, because you did mention, so our K2-ish listeners, or maybe just even the larger audience, um, may not really fully understand what it means to be living under patriarchal order. And, you know, for Asian Americans, I think a lot of the younger generation still struggle to understand that. It's it's just become this uh, iconic monster that we just see and 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 use it as a crutch to our inability to speak up. So my my question is really kind of, I feel like Asian American history and Asian history are very disconnected, but I feel like it's so connected that we need to have these conversations on the transnational kind of connections of our Chinese immigrant history to why we're talking about Asian American activism today. I feel like it's really important to to draw those connections and you do that by offering a book like this. And I'm sorry, I'm throwing it way over to like just entering this book space of The Last Boat of Shanghai. But my question is why do we consistently center our narratives around Asian American activism without acknowledging the Asian aspect in our history. And I don't know if you kind of sense where I'm going with this, but it it just bothers me that we don't see a deeper connection between the two. Yeah, no, that's a a really good point, Crystal. Uh, Can you hear me? I just got an unstable thing. Okay. That's a really good point. And I think, you know, a lot of our, number one, a lot of, uh, life in America is very um, uh, short range. I mean, it's like there was no life before you're in America. And I think that is an American point of view. Number one, people people do not make a connection that's transnational, that crosses generations. It's the here and now. And it's something that is is uh, very emblematic about American culture. I mean, even, even European civilization ex- experts talk about that. It's not just about Asian cultures too. So that's one thing. And then from the community point of view, the AAPI community point of view, I think there is a lot of pressure to be American. 
you know, that to be accepted. And, and, um, and we know that that's a big uh, barrier to cross, you know, that, that our communities have largely historically not been accepted, not seen as American. So I think for young youngsters, young Asian Americans, there's really like a, a big pressure to want to be accepted, which yeah. is probably pretty human anyway. But with our uh, cultural, um, you know, challenges that we face, I think there's even more pressure to do that. Yeah. And maybe almost a refusal to see that connection because it's just uh, claiming, like you say, uh, claiming our American identity. I mean, I feel conflicted because I, you know, growing up in the States, but moving to Hong Kong and living there for many years is um, in Asian space, they would look at me and uh, see me as an you know, an outsider, even though I'm Chinese, right? The American, the Asian American, the um, the bamboo, right? The yellow outside, hollow yeah. inside, banana right. or whatever all those things are. So, right. um, you know, we struggle with that um, and, and not being fully accepted in Asian culture. And then here we're never completely accepted uh, as fully American. So, right. Right. you know, how do well, we address this? Let's go go a little bit backwards about um, why you quit medical school, Helen. You naughty girl. Yes, I was very naughty. As a matter of fact, um, you know, I basically had two tracks going on in my life. One was that I, you know, I had been been brought up as a respectful daughter, even though I knew there were things in my life that I wanted to change, and not just my life, but um, the world around me. I mean, I was a child of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement when the U.S. war in Vietnam was going on, the women's movement, the gay liberation movement. All these things were happening all around me. And I knew that the world could be better, and I wanted to be part of that. And so um, so I did get involved in, in different, you know, um, uh, student student organizing efforts and things like that when I was in college. But at the same time, what was I going to do with my life? You know, how would I work? And being the daughter of immigrants, you know, doctor, lawyer, teacher, business, those were the actually only things I knew um, from, you know, my very, I guess, uh, sheltered life as a daughter of, of immigrants. And I was very shy then. Yes, I did change, but um, I was very shy and the idea of speaking up in public just terrified me. So that knocked out teacher and lawyer. And business I associated with the very difficult life my parents had trying to raise us and sell trinkets out of our home. And so uh, that left lawyer. And I, I majored in politics, history, public and international affairs, and took the minimum number of pre-med classes that I could. That should have been a real indication, a but <laughs> right. yeah, it, it, it was a sign, but I didn't Wait, notice so, it. And then you did medical school because your parents wished that upon you uh, and you thought that you could fall into that space. Yeah. Just, it wasn't that my parents wanted me to, but it was, it was all I knew. And that oh. was partly because, you know, my, you know, my, that's all my parents knew. And they never said you must be a daughter, a doctor. So they never said you must be a doctor, but the fact uh -huh. that I got into medical school changed yes. everything. Then it was, yeah. then it was, oh, our daughter, the doctor, you'll take care of us when we're old, because then I, I was going to be my parents' retirement, their medical right. plan ahead, right. and that made it very hard because then it was, you know, I had all of the, yeah, the expectation, and they needed it. My parents had no money. You know, I needed a scholarship mm. to go to school, and and they would need that support when you know uh, they were old. So, uh, so I went to medical school, and within about two weeks, I realized what a terrible mistake I had made. You know that that this was not uh, a culture I wanted to be part of. And you, you have to imagine back in the 1970s medicine was dominated by white men and there were very few women very few people of color as doctors in america and when they would teach it would be talking really stink about the patients that would come in as though that they were less than animals and so i hated that and um 
but with my parents, you'll take care of us when we're old. It was, it was really hard. I, I kept at it. I uh, also got involved in organizing a lot of um, community things then and tried to stick with it for as long as I could. But after two years, my body was telling me, you're making yourself sick doing something that is that you that you just don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I just finally, after two years, I realized I can't do this another two years. And mm. I told my parents that I was going to take a leave of absence. <laughs> I didn't say I'm quitting. <laughs> I said I have to take uh, a leave. So, uh, but that was bad enough. And let me just say how unhappy my father in particular was. He um, probably didn't speak to me in about, for about two years, you know, and he would write letters that were horrible letters. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And I'm sure that you didn't have much communication even when you were at home with your father or was there, were you, were you close in terms of communicating thoughts and, and, you know, Um personal no 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 none of the children none of us i i have four brothers and a sister our goal was to share as little as possible because in a patriarchal family you know where you're you're always living under the control of the the patriarch who could be the father the grandfather but basically the the man who is god in the family uh, right. who is controlling and judgmental, not a right. kind and God. To give a recap, too, yeah. for people who don't really understand Chinese Confucian patriarchal structures, there's this term called thrice following. Uh, so as a dutiful daughter, first you have to follow and listen to your father, and then it's your husband. And if your husband's not around, then it's your brother or, you know, your husband's right, brother. Right, the, the, so, the three obediences yeah. of Confucius. The, exactly. The, uh, Right. The uh, wife obeys the husband. The widow obeys the sons. The and there's a third one, but it's all about that for for a girl or a woman in a in a um, Confucian kind of family, you were always obeying somebody else. You had no voice. Exactly. And right. so and that was the the life my mother had. I mean, I could see that that's what she, she um, lived under, and I didn't want that. And so, um, but anyway. Yeah. I'm sorry? Was your mother happy? Um, not always, no. I, I, I don't think it was um, necessarily a match made in heaven. And I think my mother's life, uh, for as long as my father lived, and he was much older than my mother, um, yeah. so he passed first. Uh, up right. until that point, she lived pretty much under his um, approval or disapproval. And, wow. And so... I think for a lot of kids of immigrants, not just from, you know, um, China, you know, but there can be a very judgmental, critical parent. And and the, under a patriarchal family, the critical father is always there, you know. And I, yeah. I, and I know you asked me, did we communicate much with my father? No, because that critical parent would always find something wrong and we could never mm-hmm. do enough. So, um, so having quit medical school, that was really a huge transgression. And, um, I have to say though, that my father finally came around because, you know, there's the critical part, but there's also the part of every parent. It's kind of like you want your kid to be okay. And what could be more okay to, you know, an immigrant than uh, your kid will always have uh, employment as a doctor and status in society. So, that was a great disappointment, but when my father could see that as a writer and a journalist and, and actually even as an activist in the Vincent Chin case, you know, he saw that that was a positive thing. And that's right. when he finally did come around. So for young, mm. you know, young people today who are struggling to find their own voice but are worried about parental disapproval, eventually they can come around. And my father was the extreme of critical and he came around. So I guess the thing is to have to really, you know, believe in yourself and Mm. to know that, you know, 
you're the only one right. who's going to be living your voice, your your life. And so your voice yes. is, your inner voice yes. is everything. Right. And I think that's uh, that's a very important message, too. Having said that, you know, Helen, if there is a huge exodus of medical students leaving because of this interview, <laughs> let's just say that uh, it's not. They can say, well, Helen said that, right, you know. Right, right, right. Chris, no. yes, I want to, I want to underscore that too. For some people, you know, of course, med- being a doctor is the right thing. For me, right. having the, the, nobody wants an unhappy doctor. You don't want to get your oh, no. injection from an unhappy oh. doctor. So, yeah. that's exactly, that's a good point. So, can I, um, I wanted to move on to talking about your Asian American activism. So you briefly did mention Vincent Chin, but that's kind of like a very critical role you played in the Vincent Chin case with um, the brutal beating uh, of Vincent Chin by these two white men during that time. Now, I know you talk about this a lot, um, but I also wanted to ask you if being an Asian American activist with that title does that limit you know we talk about voice and how you have to kind of find your voice so in this case it sort of helps catapult you out there with your sense of activism but as an asian american does that limit the conversations about what it means to be american or does it amplify it by focusing on what's lacking if you know what i mean Sure. You know, I I consider myself an activist and a writer. I I am Asian American. I'm very proud of it. And it's all about context, this idea of identity and how we identify. I mean, depending where I am, I might say that I'm Chinese American, you know, or or, uh, the daughter of immigrants who happen to be from China. But I also, you know, I'm a multi-layered, complicated person like every other human being that is what makes us human that we have so many different aspects to us so i'm also an activist for example in fem- feminist issues um as right. a, a gender gender uh you know issues i am in i am in lgbt circles i'm a out lesbian i'm proud of who i am and um and all, all of those things intersect you know, mm-hmm. um, so it, 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 yeah, it doesn't mean that I am only uh, Asian American or Chinese American. And, and so, and I think that's true for everybody. We all have gender ability, a, a, a class background that has shaped us depending on our parents or families um, wherewithal. We have different things, our, our language abilities, our, what generation our families um came to America if they came to America. So, um, you know, there there are just many, many different aspects of us, our spirituality. And so, um, so I don't, you know, I I, I don't feel um, limited by any of these labels, but I do think that it's, you know, it, it helps people understand where we're, where we're coming from if we get quote a label but the thing is we all have to remember that there's no one label that defines any any human being it's impossible and in fact i wanted to say i don't know if this contributes to any kind of of your perspective in breaking down these barriers but to to resist heteronormative narratives whether it's on based on gender and race or, or any kind of just existing mainstream ideas about structures that um, being part of the LGBTQ community, does that help you see, break down those boundaries? Like you don't, you don't see structures as being binary, that your approach to life in itself is very intersectional and, and, and recognizing the need for context. Does that, does that connect or are they, is that a part of your inner monologue, if you will? Oh, absolutely. I think you really hit on an important point, Crystal, because, you know, when we walk into a room, any one of us, you know, depending who else is in the room, 
they might, you know, if it's all men, they're going to see, oh, a woman has walked into the room. Or if it's um, non-Asian people, it's like you're going to stick out being an Asian person and maybe they'll notice your race or ethnicity first. Um, you know, but uh, you find that I have found that there's an assumption, right? Especially if mm-hmm. you're a person of color that and come from a community of color that, you know, you're going to be heterosexual. You're going to be straight because they... Um, because of the way media has portrayed, like uh, gay people are all white men, you know, which mm. also leaves out women, you know. Um, but you know, it might be transgender, just uh, all of the different ways of of you know sexuality today. Um, but there are assumptions that are made when we walk into a room, and I think much of my early life was trying to find a way to bring all of myself into a room that when I was, you know, talking about anti-Asian hate, that people not assume that because I'm an Asian woman, that, you know, I'm, I'm married to a man with a bunch of kids, or, um, or not look at me as an Asian American and think, oh, she's the model minority, and she's rich, like all Asians are, they walk around with Mm. tons of money in their pockets, which, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Mm. some people do believe. And so, so it's how do we and to your point about being sort of, quote, an intersectional person where you have a lot of ways that, you know, we that I will speak of myself, you know, um, in an out way um, uh-huh. and share who I am, that, that uh-huh. I hope that disrupts the assumptions because, you know, none of us should be seen in just one dimension. We're not, we're not, you know. So if right. we could all bring ourselves into a room as fully human in our full personhood and be respected for being a full human being, wow, that would break down a lot of the problems we have in America today. Well, we have a lot, a, a very far way to go with that because our dominant, you know, mainstream culture is so based on these very, very black and white structures. Um, you did mention the influence of media, and I wanted to go there with you. Is you know all these because in light of today's um, tensions and you know attributing uh, racial anti hate crimes to racialized and sexualized bodies. Um, so the idea of the Asian woman being hypersexualized, as in referencing the Atlanta uh, murders, right, or the other extreme. The other extreme with the male, the Asian males being under sexualized, like emasculated in in Hollywood films. So, can we can you speak a little bit to how these types of um, media misrepresentations kind of perpetuate the way we are still coping with racial tensions today um, within the Asian American communities and and the larger black and white narrative. Well, yes, I think it's incredibly sad to to say that what happened in Atlanta and the singling out of Asian women to be to be murdered was um, an example of how how little we have progressed in exactly. um, seeing Asian people as multidimensional. I mean, the, you know, the most disgusting thing out of the, what was already a terrible mass killing was the day after to see the um, law enforcement give a press conference and say, oh, this had nothing to do with race. It was all about sex addiction. And it was just the killer having a bad day. And it's kind of like, oh, how many ways can we completely discount the lives of these beautiful people and their families that were suddenly, you know, and the impact that it has on the whole uh, community in this democracy. And, and that right there exemplified just how, how much farther we have to go because it was precisely because they were Asian women and this um, notion of hypersexuality and the, you know, that could lead to a, somebody wanting to kill women to avoid, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, that is the history of America. You know, even before the yeah. Chinese Exclusion Act, there was the Page Act, which singled out Chinese women for this very reason and tried to bar Chinese women from the continent of, 
America, you know. So, so yeah, we have a, a, a lot of, of unlearning to do in America and relearning the, the reality. So, um, right. yeah, all of this is, is still what Asian Americans live under. Do you think that this whole um, movement of implementing Asian American studies is going to change that narrative? And do you think, or or is this a kind of a reducing it again to a topic that is within its own category? For me, I feel like why is Asian American studies not part of larger American studies? It's like black history. Black history is American history. You know, we often critique that. Why do we have Black History Month when it, we should be talking about the slave history of this country's foundation, you know, um, from the get-go, uh, but again, with the Asian American history, it's like it's like our country is still grappling with trying to figure out where to place us as a category. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, black history, Asian history, Latinx history—you know—all of the um, all of the parts of America should be fully into the history of. America and what is taught in school. However, the reality is that it is not. And there is a master narrative of what, you know, people are taught in schools. What I learned had nothing to do with, um, you know, marginalized people in America. And it was entirely about European, the the superiority of European um, cultures and and how uh, European immigrants made America great. And so without these kind of laws, and thank you to um, the people, especially the API people in Illinois and New Jersey, which have recently um, Mm. passed in their state legislatures, say, uh, you know, laws that said K through 12 should uh, integrate Asian American studies in the school curricula. Now, how that's going to be done or or whatever is another question, but it's being required. And without that requirement, we already know after, what, a few hundred years that nothing will be taught. So, yes, it would be, you know, we can aspire to the day that we don't need things like this, but unfortunately, without them, it's not going to happen. So hopefully more and more states will make that requirement because otherwise, this kind of ignorance that led to the mass killing in Atlanta and unfortunately continues with so many other um, attacks that are going on with this pandemic of, of racism toward AAPI people that, um, you know, we, we have to make ourselves known. And part of that is through teaching in schools. And the other part is for all of us to be able to speak up, you know, and, and show who our communities are, show that we have families, that we are full human beings, and we are part of a part of this democracy in every way. You know, this goes back to our kind of um, theme of voice, of, of finding voice. And even within the Asian American community, I would like to say that uh, going back to the kind of the gender issue is that women's voices tend to be erased even within our own Asian American history. Um, and how do we how do we resist that? You know, how do we get women to amplify their own voices or the stories um, challenge existing narratives about Asian American history? Right? How do we do that? And I think you do well, that. In you your know, there, yeah. well. I, but I'm not the only one. There are many writers and, you know, whether they're in fiction or nonfiction, just so mm-hmm. many stories out there, whether through books and so many scholars, you know, here at the yes. UH, you know, the the uh, Department of American Studies and, and throughout the country, there's really a incredible body of knowledge, scholars who have been working so hard, finding out pieces of, of history that I call MIH missing in history and they've been reclaiming that you know here in in hawaii you know finding hana uli uli for example an internment camp right in oahu that for years people didn't even know it existed and making that um making that now a national uh landmark um you know through the federal government i mean things like that are going on so what we need to do is to make it make it available and known 
beyond the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. That's what all of this effort is about, um, to, you know, make an impact on the incredible ignorance that exists about uh, our communities that continues to allow, um, you know, people to think that all Asian Americans are spies for the People's Republic of China. Believe it or not, there are people that believe that. And there's actually a federal initiative. You know, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, has said that, you know, every Chinese is a potential spy for China, meaning every waiter, every child is, you know, really. And, and, and there's actually an initiative going on right now that is, is uh, watching every um, uh, Chinese student, you know, yeah. from yeah. Who, who, you know, I mean, it's just happening. And you can see it in the news, people where the government is dropping charges on people that they had arrested because, in fact, they find out, oh, well, just because they are ethnic Chinese, um, it turns out they're not spies. Um, But that's happening. And so we can only hope that with a little bit more education, uh, we can dispel some of this ignorance and this assumption and rush to judgment. Yeah. And and it it, it goes I think there's so much work to do in the education field is how to normalize these conversations so it's not just reduced to, again, you know, um, and, and when, when people say, oh, this is an Asian-American issue and then that has nothing to do with me, uh, then people tend to rush it off and, and not listen in or tune in. So, you know, what what do you think it takes to get to a point where we're not just preaching to the choir, you know, we're not having our internal Asian Asian-Americans basis to to create movement and social justice activism, but it is part of a larger um, uh, counter narrative to the kind of, you know, ongoing, uh, I want to say white space that needs this to, to recognize this, right? That That's where we need to go. But how do we do that? Well, yeah, I mean, that that is the big question, right? Uh, there have been so many efforts, so many organizations that are trying to do that. Um, you know, and I, I think it really begins with ourselves uh, not being afraid to show who we are, to tell stories about our communities, to not feel so much like we have to fit in, but actually that we should be accepted for who we are. Now, that seems very simple to say, but I, I remember during the civil rights um, movement for the black community that there were efforts to say, you know, you are beautiful, say it, I am beautiful, I am a beautiful human being, I am somebody, I am somebody. And why did black Americans have to do that? Well, you know, I think in our Asian communities, we also, we, you know, have to say to ourselves, I am somebody and I deserve to be treated like a full human being, like a full American, and to be proud of that. But beyond that, it's not just an individual thing. It really is that we have to be organized and that that we have to support the community organizations that are trying to do this very thing, the ones that are working hard to go to the, you know, halls of the state houses or the Uh halls of Congress and the school boards and to say, we should have this kind of education for all children, you know, and um, to insist on our right to be fully part of this democracy. We have to do that. And because nobody's going to do it for us, we are the ones who um, are gonna make it happen. And so it's, it's like that saying, we're the ones we've been waiting for. There's nobody to wait for to do this for us. It has to right. come out of our own communities. Yeah, and the time is now. And I, I feel like um, a lot of times we dismiss the the complications of Asian Americans burdened with both, as we had mentioned earlier in the interview, um, this patriarchal structure of, you know, again, you know, you you feeling like you didn't have a voice or not encouraged to, to you know, question things. So on one hand, being kind of like, um, a, 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 I guess, a pawn in this larger picture of just following that structure, while at the same time, dealing with America's racial structure. So we have like all these things going on at the same time and it complicates it, right? So how do we right. find that space? Right. 
within the racial narrative and within the Chinese or Asian American um, kind of controlling structures to get our voices heard. I think there's just so much. And the gender thing, of course, too. So, like, all these threats or pressures. Right, right. Well, they, they are pressures. And and I think especially for a lot of Asian American families that there's, a, you know, 70% of our Asian Americans are immigrants, you know, born somewhere else and may not feel entirely um, knowledgeable about the, you know, uh, political structure, the law enforcement structure, really just want, you know, their their families, their children to sort of lie low and to your original questions about, you know, doing something safe, like being a doctor. And so mm-hmm. to, to a lot of those parents, I, I have to say, we will never be safe unless we speak up and make it clear that, that, that we have a right to be here. And so, uh, and to, to live life like every other American, you know, and that means to speak out as well. I run into so many students who want to do more, who want to be activists in some way. Maybe they want to be um, uh, journalists or want to go into law or something like that and be civil rights lawyers. And their parents say, no, we want you to be a microbiologist or we want you to like be a doctor. And so I run into students who are saying, yeah, I have a triple major. You know, I'm studying, um, you know, neurobiology and engineering and i'm minoring in in uh in drama but what i really want to do is be an actor or be a writer and and you know so that's the thing with it you know we have to recognize that we actually need um our leaders and our speakers and our thinkers and our doers to come and be part of all parts of 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 society and uh, yeah. you know so I think that I, I think, has to go on with right. our families, too. Yeah. It, it makes me think about the question of how we define success. Again, especially within Asian communities, you know, again, you know, uh, okay, so you have to be that doctor or lawyer to be successful. And why is the arts devalued uh, almost to a shameful kind of a way? Like, oh, you're going to put your flaunt your body out there for people to, to gaze at? Uh, where is the value, where is the self-respect, you know, so we have those pressures too. So again, I always question what, what does it mean to be successful? Um, and I don't know how maybe have you, um, you know, your form of success came um, from a place of defiance, right? You've proven that you can find your voice and resist what you were supposed to do or what you were expected to do, and you found success in that. So how would you speak to people who are grappling with those pressures and how to find success within a very um, resistant culture, like where they they want to but don't know how to deal with the structures around them? Well, I have to say, number one, uh, I think it all depends what we consider success. And I think... For, for any person, success has to come from a place within. You know, we, we all have to, you know, at the end of the day, look at ourselves, look at ourselves in the mirror and ask, did I do something that I found worthwhile? You know, that I found worthwhile, not what people around me said. And, you know, because as long as we're measuring our own worth by our own value, by somebody else's definition, you know, why do we give somebody else that much power? Why, you know, we, our success has to come from within. So I would say that number one. And I think that was the biggest thing I learned, which is I I can't measure my success by what my father's expectation was for me, you know, that, that I should be a doctor. Well, the world would not have benefited by having a doctor who was miserable. It just wouldn't Mm. have been. And, and it would have made me sick. I mean, and I would have not become the writer and the activist and so forth, you know, possibly that, that, um, that I have become. And for me, what I'm doing now, I feel like I, I feel like I add value. And to me, that is a success. You know, if I can add value by my existence, 
I mean, you know, we're all on earth for this short period of time. Can we do something that makes the world a little bit better than when we came into it? And if we can say yes at the end of the day, then then I consider that to be something worthwhile. Um, and not to live up to somebody else's ex- expectation and who knows where that expectation came from. So that's one thing. And the other is that I don't think, I, I wouldn't say that I I um, had a life of defiance. I think I, I, I've had a life of just trying to be real about what was important um, and, val- and things that I valued about, uh, you know, each human being, people's lives being, you know, treated as equal and um, to have a system of society that really does, you know, uphold, uh, you know, life, liberty and the pursuit of of, of happiness for everybody. Um, so that's what I, you know, and where I saw it not happening, that I could find the place to speak up. Um, and I don't really think of that as defiance. I think of that as standing with people, you know, with humanity. So um, uh, anyway, for me, that's where my measure of my internal worth, my value comes from. And if I can keep doing that, then, then you know, uh, I do feel like that I'm adding something and not just sort of being there. Mm, thank you. Now, I know you have to run off, and I just wanted to conclude by uh, saying that, well, you know, when we talk about defiance and we talk about resisting structures, and I had mentioned you as an unruly woman, I, in my mind, being unruly is something positive. It is defined because the, the word unruly is defined around what certain structures create as what is ruly, right? And so it's really right. – um, it doesn't it doesn't do justice to what it's really um, – suggesting or performing um i appreciate that i i appreciate that yeah no i i understood i i didn't take it as a negative so good um, good because you you know it's such an honor it is such a value that we underappreciate to 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 resist structures and i'm not saying that we have to be defined in order to succeed but i do think that having a voice like yours to to, to, to your sharing of your experiences and what they seem as um, defined to some or to, to resist um, structures, which I think is important in moving forward, is something to be, to be valued. Um, and I just wanted to end with, you know, highlighting that you have so much work that continues to be done. And I understand you are uh, – Part of a, you're part of a new documentary uh, project with CAM, the Center for Asian American Media, partnering with journalist Paula Madison and Donald Young. Uh, did you want to speak a little bit about, you know, how the, the Vincent Chin case has come full circle in addressing today's racial violences? And it's something that um, is driven by your need to again, tackle these um, racial narratives and to fight it. So how do you feel, again, about your the importance of your work in shifting the narrative, in, in resisting and, and creating more space for Asian American voices? What do you want to leave our oh. listeners? Well, I think to, um, you know, pick up with what you were just saying there about, you know, defiance and resistance that really it's about uh, what we used to say in, the, in you know in the 60s and 70s tell it like it is in other words mm. speak your truth and there are other ways you know that that's come out speak truth to power but basically tell the truth of who you are because for most of our our you know communities and certainly the Asian American Pacific Islander communities it's it's our truths are hidden people don't know what our truths are so every time we tell who we really are and tell the real stories of our of our lives, of our com- families, of our communities, I mean, that is, you know, telling it like it is. That is speaking truth to power because power has completely ignored us or distorted our communities. And so now I would never have 
anticipated that 40 years after getting, you know, after Vincent Chin was killed and beginning to be involved in that, um, you know, that campaign for justice, um, that 40 years from then, now we're talking about this again yeah. and what we, what what we can learn from it. But so there are so many stories that were not told. You know, a lot yeah. of people know what happened to Vincent Chin on the, the night of his bachelor party, the injustice that followed. But what people don't know are how communities, Asian American, you know, um, uh, black communities, other communities of color, uh, women, um, you know, other immigrant groups, people of faith, you know, how people came together. You know, today we talk a lot about the divisive, divided communities that we are and wonder, can we even ever be allies? Back then, people came together and really tried to build unity and came together for a cause of, you know, standing up for another human being. And so um, that's what we're hoping to do with this new um, effort to add to the narrative of of the Vincent Chin story, because it's also a story about community and, and, you know, telling more, deepening the knowledge about, you know, a very diverse Midwestern Asian American multidimensional communities that didn't necessarily have that much in common with each other until this case. And that we were able to, you know, get the support and build bonds with, you know, the black community, which was the majority community in Detroit, but also, you know, um, all of the other communities that were there. I mean, and that took work. It took effort. It took people reaching out to each other and uh, learning from each other and then trying to build together. Right. And and just to to recycle that old material, but so much, like you said, we don't know about and offering it to the newer generations and adding new narratives to it. So um, this is, again, much work to be done. And uh, I really appreciate your sharing these projects and your voice and your thoughts on and, and your experience growing up. And it's just really beautiful. And I wish I had more time to talk to you, Helen, but thank you so much for your time. Oh, Crystal, thank you so much. You, your questions were really, you know, right on. And, and you've given me a lot to think about, too. So thank you.